Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi everyone, welcome to LawPod. I'm Ruby and today I'm joined by two Queen's graduates and accomplished members of the Northern Ireland Civil Service, Professor Claire Archbold and Geraldine Fee, who are now working together as head and deputy head of the Northern Ireland Violence Against Women's and Girls Strategy. Welcome and thank you for joining it's us. It's great to be here, Ruby. Yes, thanks. Thanks for the invitation, Ruby. Of course. Um, Now, Professor Archibald, I know you've been able to give an overview of your route into law and your extensive experience since then in the legal sector, including time spent in private practice, the Office of Law Reform, Departmental Solicitor to the Northern Ireland Ministers and the Departments, and now Head of the Strategy. So anyone who would like to hear more about that can head over to LawPod's panel discussion headed by Dr. Rachel Kellyan. But I would love to ask Geraldine, what was your introduction to law? For instance, why did you choose to study it? Ruby, I was always fascinated by everything legal and really wanted to be a lawyer from quite a young age. I liked the idea of being able to make a difference and I thought that law was the the best way to achieve that. So came to Queen's and studied for um, my degree, went to the Institute and then went to the bar for my non-practicing privilege. And then I practiced for a couple of years after that. Um, before leaving and joining the Northern Ireland Court Service as a legal officer. That provided me with a wealth of opportunities, which I hadn't anticipated when I actually joined. Uh, The role changed quite quickly after joining to expand from being a purely legal role to being a legal and policy role. And I think that that then set me on the journey into policy making using my legal background. Yeah, the transformation of the role you talked about there from being exclusively law to law and policy. I think that speaks to the skill set that is often shared between law and policy, but maybe not talked about enough today. Claire, do you think that the skill set achieved during a law degree provides a valuable foundation for a transition into policymaking? Or maybe are there additional strengths needed for work as a civil servant? I think it's both. If you're in another country, for example, in the United States, most people in the administration will have that dual skill set of law and policy. But law is a great foundation, I think, for two reasons. First of all, you understand the constitution, you understand how law works, you understand the institutions of the state. But more particularly, it's the way that it teaches you to think. And that analytical skill and the ability to use words well doesn't just translate into policy making; it translates into lots of different spheres. But certainly, I think it's a great foundation but you need to do more. Yeah, definitely. I think that when you've discussed previously or when I've been researching, you know, your experience in the civil service, you've both had varied experiences and I'm sure that those have taught you a lot throughout your time. In terms of providing listeners with a sense of what such a career in the civil service might look like, could you both tell us some standout moments from your career? I suppose one of the standout moments for me was working on the... um, Justice Northern Ireland Act 2002 
And it was really one of the, the, the first justice acts which were being brought forward in preparation, laying the foundations for the devolution of justice. And I led the, the Northern Ireland Court Service Bill team, working closely with the NIO Bill team on that. We brought forward a whole range of measures, laying the foundations for the, the Law Commission in Northern Ireland, for the Judicial Appointments Commission, sort of changes from JPs to lay magistrates. It was a fascinating time. The experience of actually being in Westminster and supporting that bill going through, I think, was very much a standout moment for me. There have been others. I mean, when I moved in a more definite direction into policymaking, I also worked on something I never thought that I would have any interest or involvement in. And I created a cross-sectoral partnership to bring forward a strategy to end bovine TB. And again, as a lawyer, you never thought you would have worked on that. But how fascinating the topic is, how much it costs the Northern Ireland economy, what a risk it is. And using all those skill sets of analysing data, weighing information, making judgments, um, persuading people, trying to build a consensus and bringing people with you, writing it up in a concise and coherent way, which is understandable, really deploying all the skills which I had learnt in the more formative days of, of my career. And another standout moment, I suppose, from my more recent career was working on Project Stratum, which was the broadband project, ro- rolling out broadband to serve most of rural Northern Ireland who still don't have a, a satisfactory service. And again, as a lawyer, I never thought I would be involved in anything as technical or as detailed, but applying the same skill set and applying it in a way where you can make a real tangible difference to the quality of people's lives in Northern Ireland and also the economic foundation, um, which will facilitate a lot of business growth. So there there's some key highlights. They're not them all, but there's, there's some key ones. And Claire? Geraldine has given a really good sense of the breadth of opportunity that there is as a civil servant. You can be working in different areas. You're trying to build coalitions with different sectors. You can be working on economic growth or you can be working on tackling some of the really difficult social problems that we have. One of the highlights for me was coming into the civil service first and leading a programme of family law research in the Office of Law Reform, which felt very much felt a little bit like academia but you were actually making policy that would shape people's lives that was quite a legal skill set but over the years I've discovered that there there's a whole second skill set that you need not just to be able to to analyze to persuade to encourage to find the sweet spot where you can get agreement on issues and to understand the the political environment that you're operating in but also to lead people and to manage people, and to manage a budget. So a senior civil servant uh, will have learned their professional skill set as a lawyer, obviously, but also how to lead an organisation. And I think that's a skill set, that leading and managing people. I used to joke that as a lawyer in my middle career, I was at a disadvantage in the civil service because I hadn't learned I hadn't been the senior filing clerk who had to deal with the filing clerk who was coming in persistently late and learn those staff management skills. Now, I've learned them now, I hope, but it means that you don't see that second skill set until you have to exercise it. 
And sometimes as lawyers, we can go into a career and go, well, I'm the lawyer and that's what I do. But actually in business or in the civil service, that whole second skill set, it takes years to learn, but it's really, really worthwhile and it's worth watching out for. And I suppose for me, I was thinking about all of the highlights that I could talk about, whether it was, you know, working with the uh, Ministry of Justice on civil partnerships or whether it was advising the Department of Agriculture on the implications of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And actually, the one that I came up with was an afternoon a couple of years ago in North Belfast where we had no ministers. So my boss, the Permanent Secretary of the Department of Justice, Peter May, he and I went with our team who had done the work to open a gate in a peace wall in North Belfast. Now, what that team had done, they had worked with the local community over a period of years. They had got a coalition of people in the community who had built trust between the people on the two sides of the peace wall to think maybe we could have a gate that would open and that would allow our young people to to mingle. They had found a funding source to put a basketball court and a play park and things that made it a really attractive place to be to give you a reason to go through the gate on the peace wall. And this was the day when we were opening it and members of the community were there to celebrate what they had achieved with the help of my team. So it was very little about what I had done. It was about what my people had done. But being there and seeing the work and seeing what that meant on the ground and how different life was going to be for, you know, a young mum who lived in one of those streets who had kids who she wanted to take to the play park. It reminded me of the thing that you're doing in the civil service, which is that you're close to impacting on the problems that affect people's lives and you have the capability, you have the capacity to make things better. And for me, that's the key thing about a career in the public service. It's it's what I call the Bob the Builder question. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. It's great to hear about your personal journeys um, and how the civil service has facilitated you having these really formative experiences, both professionally and personally, as you just mentioned. In regards to gender diversity, do you think that over your time in the Northern Ireland Civil Service, there's been a, a journey to become more gender balanced within that sector? I would say definitely yes. I joined the Northern Ireland Court Service, which at that point was a separate civil service, but it amalgamated on devolution of justice. But yes, you can see a great sea change evidenced, not least by the fact that we now have a female head of the the civil service. I suppose looking back, back in the 1950s was a secretary in the civil service. She sort of had to leave because of the marriage bar. And when you look at how far in that that period things have moved and then looking back over my own time in the civil service just the amount of senior women that there now are in the senior civil service one of the things that I was very heavily involved in a few years ago was the the women's mentoring circles which was set up by women for women to help encourage women to make that move into the senior civil service and then up the ranks of the senior civil service. So I think that sort of more expansive mindset of trying to encourage women to move forward in the service, the tangible evidence of that through the female permanent secretary appointments, the head of the civil service appointment. We have a way to go. 
there is still a lot of women who are disproportionately represented at some of the lower grades, but there's definitely been movement. Yeah, Claire, I wonder, do you think that the the legal sector could learn from the the reform that Geraldine just mentioned? I think it's really interesting because two things happened. And I think one of them has happened in the legal sector and there is scope for the other one to happen. I had a student job in the civil service in 1989. I added up the mileage totals for the men in the water service mileage in the water service vans. And it was all men in the water service vans and it was all women in the team who added up the mileage. And everybody senior was a man. And at that stage, one of the reasons for that was that all of the women who would have come into the civil service at a time when they could have got to the top of the tree by 1980s had had to leave because the marriage bar, apart from people like Miss Sloan and Miss McAllister, in those days you called senior people Miss and Mister. So you need a pool of women who are in a position to succeed. But you also need to actually do it on purpose. And there was an absolutely formative moment. Now, it's nearly 10 years ago now. But when the head of the civil service then, Malcolm McKibben, asked the women who were in the senior civil service to go to the Ulsterfolk and Transport Museum, where we had a meeting room. And he said, look, we want to figure out what we can do to encourage more women up the ranks because we're losing our talent and we're not making the most of the talent we have. And that was when the women's mentoring circles came out of that. Another thing that came out of it was that they set targets. Now, it wasn't quotas, so we weren't saying that there would be female-only lists, but they said within five years, we want to have 50% of grade five, senior civil services, grade five, grade three, and then permanent secretary. Said We want to have 50% of grade fives and 50% of grade threes in five years. And just by the board having that on their agenda every time they talked about staffing, they were able to track it happening and they were able to look at things that were chill factors. Now, one of those was the need for mentoring circles and the need for peer support and the need to have women saying, because there's a, a, well, it's not really a myth, it is sort of a myth, that you can't become a senior civil servant unless you're prepared to have no life because you have to work every single hour that there is. Now, I would say sometimes you have to work very hard, but you do not always have to work every single hour that there is. And there are other things like job sharing, which we don't do enough of, or part-time. You know, we've one civil service colleague who has been a bit of a trailblazer in in working part-time in the senior civil service and showing that it can be done. So you need role models. You need people who are talking actively about the issue and you also need to question everything. So if you, for example, frame your senior civil service application form to say you must have experience within the past five years of doing such and such. Well, if in the past five years you were taking time out to have children, you're not going to have that. But you might be really, really qualified. So it's looking at things like that. And it's also one of the things that we're still looking at is Are we rewarding the right things or does our model of leadership still look male? But look at the legal sector and think about what you can do deliberately. Now, when I was in departmental solicitor's office, we did ask ourselves, 
are we sharing the briefs around equally? We looked at the number of women and the number of men who we had on the civil panel, and we tried to make sure that everybody was getting some work, that we were doing it fairly. Now, that wasn't a perfect system, but we were trying. Similarly, I know there's a law firm in Belfast, a commercial property firm that has started up recently. And because their staff pooled, people who might come to work for them are overwhelmingly female, and overwhelmingly of childbearing age. They've had to make a selling point that they offer flexible working. So the civil service has always offered flexible working. That's one of our strengths. That's why I think we have a lot of very good women who are lawyers in the civil service, because you get a fair crack at the whip. You get a fair crack at promotion, even though you may not be able to, as as a friend of mine said, there were her years when she was having children, when she wanted to do something really difficult for about 20 hours a week, because that was all the time she had. And the civil service allowed her to do that. So it's a very long way of saying we did it on purpose. So I think for the legal profession, things like the, the Law Society Women's Mentoring Scheme, things like the Chief Justice's focus on collegiality among women, I think there's more things if you put your mind to it as a profession that you can do. I couldn't agree more. And it's interesting what you said with regards to mentoring, because I think that's been reiterated by a lot of females Um in law at the moment, most recently at the Queen's Woman in Law networking event by the Lady Chief Justice and Bridget Napier, um, President of the Law Society. And I think one of the key values, I suppose, in what you were just saying is that pro- proactivity and being um, intentional with bringing forward gender diversity. And I think there's no better way to do this than the um, Northern Ireland Violence Against Women and Girls strategy that I mentioned earlier. And I wonder if you could just um, give a brief outline of what the strategy is and what it seeks to do for anyone who maybe has not heard of it yet. Well, we were commissioned in December this year following an assembly motion and an executive decision in the spring of earlier that year in 2021 to bring forward this strategy to end violence against women and girls, which is a, it's, it's quite a challenge. And the aim really there is to add value Um, to a lot of the other work which is ongoing across the system. As you're probably aware, Northern Ireland already has a domestic violence and sexual abuse strategy, which uh, has been in existence for about six years. Uh, It's coming to the end of its period. There's going to be a reiteration, a fresh strategy. The executive had also commissioned a range of social inclusion strategies, which would include gender equality strategy. So the strategy which Claire and I are bringing forward will have to coexist in that space. We're not there to displace the work being done by other departments, but we're there to amplify it, to make the connections, to provide a form of strategic oversight and coordination, and then to fill in any gaps. So in order to do this, we're going to need to bring forward a new way of thinking within the civil service and indeed within wider society. And the executive has been very clear that we need to take a whole of government and a whole of society approach. We've undertaken a a programme of research because the strategy needs to be evidence based. And we are working on um, a co-design programme which will enable us to develop the strategy with key stakeholders. And all of that work is in progress. And as an early as an early staging point, we have sought views. Now, we've had over 750 responses to the public and victim survey. 
And I believe as of this morning, when it was finally totaled up, we have about 92 uh, written responses. So we're beginning our analysis of those to see what, what people are telling us about what the strategy needs to address. And then we're working towards uh, an aim of moving into a co-design process in the autumn with a, a strategy framework for public consultation, hopefully being ready by December. And it will cover a lot of bases because one of the things that we want to tackle are the underlying attitudes and behaviours which can give rise to violence against women and girls. A lot of the actual acts of violence against women and girls are already criminalised. There's already legislation there. Now, that's not to say that that area does not need to be looked at. Is that operating as effectively as it should do? So that will need consideration. But we're very keen to look at how you affect that attitudinal and that behavioural change and address those societal norms where women are maybe treated with less respect than they should be because ultimately that creates a climate in which violence against women and girls can flourish. I think that what I'd, what I'd like to mention is the support that we've had from students at Queen's and at University of Ulster. Geraldine has given you a really good sense of how it is to develop a strategy like this. And one of the things that we need to know is what what does the problem look like from different positions in society? And what are the aspects of it that affect different people? One of the groups that we heard a lot about were students. And that might be things like spiking. It might be banter in in the classroom or uh, in the street that has an impact on, on young women. And we had a great focus group with the Civil Service Work Placement Students Network. So there's a there's a newish scheme where you can spend a year out from your degree working in the civil service. And I know a number of law students are, are doing that from both Queen's and UU. And they're using that to build their network and to understand what sort of law they would like to practice or what sort of job they would like to have. But they had taken that mentoring and and networking idea to heart, Ruby. They formed a network of their own and the network ran a focus group for us. And they gave us such a great impression of how the world looks to students and what aspects of violence against women and girls affect students. And I think that we also spoke to Stop Street Harassment NI. The, The founders of that are two young women who did it while they were undergraduates at Queen's as a result of good practice that they saw in the Netherlands on their Erasmus year. We are so impressed by what students are doing and saying around these issues in Northern Ireland at the minute, young men and young women. So keep up the good work. Yes, definitely. At this point, I should also promote the LawPod episode with the Stop Street Harassment NI leaders as well. But you've talked a lot about the cultural change that's important as part of the strategy and also the groups that you see being part of that co-designing approach that you're taking to the strategy as well as how the demands over the past two years, I suppose, have shaped the strategy and what that's going to look like going forward. With regards to the interaction between the strategy and the legal sector, often women lawyers can end up being seen as separate from the strategy. I think, you know, representing clients who find themselves in situations where issues of violence against women and girls are raised. But how might the strategy impact on women lawyers themselves, if at all? The first thing that I'd like to say is that the strapline for our sister strategy, the domestic and sexual abuse strategy, is anyone can be a victim, anyone can be a perpetrator. And I think that 
as your listeners go into the legal profession, they will find what we have found, which is that there are times when colleagues are victims of violence against women and girls and colleagues get into relationships and particularly in the sphere of domestic abuse, they don't realise they're in an abusive relationship because that sort of thing doesn't happen to people like them. And I think that's always something to keep your eyes open for. But I also think that when you're dealing with this kind of very difficult issue, as and it might be as a lawyer, or it might be as someone like Paddy Kelly, who's a barrister who has put her career in the voluntary sector, or Ursula O'Hare in, in the Children's Law Centre and the Law Centre, respectively. You're dealing with very distressing cases. It's important to acknowledge the toll that that may take on you. There's a very good organisation called Law Care who remind lawyers that you can become uh, almost distressed and sometimes PTSD-ish by proxy when you're around a lot of this work. And it's important from the outset of your career to remember to keep light among the shadows of the work that you do and to take time for yourself and to practice self-care to make sure that doesn't happen to you. But there is great help available if you do get too close to a case and it does impact on you personally. And say law care is a very good source for that. And I think the other thing that to think about when you're dealing with clients who are traumatised is that there's a new approach to law called trauma-informed practice. And I know that Dr. Cheryl Lawther's students have been doing some work with Wave Trauma Centre on what trauma-informed legal practice might look like. There's going to be a conference coming up for solicitors and barristers professions later in the year just to think about when you're dealing with someone who is in trauma they're not going to be able to come in and tell you their problem um, logically and listen to your advice and go, gosh, I really must go and do that. Yes, and I have all my documentation here and I'm going to work this out. You're going to have to take a different approach. And thinking about the ways that you do that is at the heart of trauma-informed practice, which is something that we are really interested in in the strategy. I think that's one of the key the key elements uh, that you know, Claire and I will need to deliver if this strategy is going to be a success. It's changing mindsets. Now, I don't think ever anybody ever sets out in their journey not wanting to collaborate, but it's sometimes finding the time and also making those strategic connections between the work of various groups. And that is something that we are going to focus on. Now, we're already aware that there's some really good collaborative work being done between people in the, the justice sector and people in the health sector. And we've got sort of domestic and sexual violence partnerships and we've got the Community Safety Board. But we're looking to amplify that and to make sure that the right people are in the right room at the right time talking to each other. Now, that sounds very simple. And believe me, it's probably, you know, one of the, the biggest challenges ever facing a civil servant is is to make sure that we move out of silo thinking and ensure that we look at this problem as a holistic problem. I know from my time in other departments, you would have sat in policy areas and you would have thought, well, violence against women and girls doesn't touch upon my policy remit. And if you look at it through a different lens, you will see how it does. And that is what we're hoping to ensure 
right across policymakers and also people who deliver services. And I have to say that everyone in the system we have approached to date is very much up for that challenge. But there are lots of policy challenges out there. There's a lot of financial restraint. But the singular impact of violence against women and girls on society, I think bringing that to the fore and making people fully aware that this is a challenge which has to be faced now. It was wonderful to hear about kind of the human side that's really brought out by working in policy that sometimes falls to the wayside, I think, in the legal sector, you know, in favour of that analytical business mindset. And in terms of any advice you would have for women coming up in law at the moment and navigating these difficulties that they might face in terms of gender diversity and and inclusion, what advice would you have for them? My advice to someone starting out, it sounds a bit Marie Kondo, know what brings you joy, but know why you're there. Know what matters to you. I mean, you won't have a a fully worked out, this is what my career is going to be and I'm going to do this and this is all the change I'm going to bring. But you know what interests you. One of the questions that I love asking law students is, are you more interested in the deal or the story? And that'll help you to know the sort of area you'd like to go into. And also find your tribe. And that may be other law students. Having those people who you trust absolutely is really important. But beyond that, there's also your community. And it might be people who are interested in the same voluntary society as you. For example, there's a a barrister called Joe Brawley, whose community is also in the GAA because he was a great player in his day and he's also a pundit. But whoever your community is, find them. And for women, I think it's particularly important to actually create that space and to create a group of like-minded people around you and I know that saying behind every great woman, there's a crowd of other great women all cheering her on. You want to make sure that you have that. Caitlin Moran has a a great book called How to Be a Girl. And there's a chapter in it called How Do You Know When You Have Experienced Some Sexism? One of the ways you know is because you talk to your crowd about it. You talk to your supporters about it and they go, that's not great. So you can say, do you know what? It's not just me. It's not me being super sensitive. And I think having your cheerleaders and having your support around you is really important. And as you get further up the tree, you have a duty to be a role model and you have a duty to be a mentor and you have a duty to be the person who you needed earlier in your career. So we also need to change systems and processes. But the key thing that you can do is do it with other people and don't ever feel that you're on your own. Yeah, I would have three bits of advice which I wish had been given to me at the outset. The first is take every opportunity that is offered to you. Uh, Someone once said to me that the best advice I've been ever given was if a door opens, go through it. And also to look for opportunities. There are lots of opportunities out there. The second point links on to that. And it's about being brave and not indulging in what can sometimes be traditionally female self-limiting beliefs. You know, if you see an opportunity, do not look at all of the reasons why you couldn't do that. Think, I can do this and be brave about it. Sometimes the hardest step is the first step and, you know, go for it. The third challenge is help other women. 
there are other women sitting out there who um, maybe haven't had the same advantages or the life stories or who are sitting there living self-limiting beliefs every day. And if they can see other people doing things through modeling that, but they might need that word of encouragement. They might need that reaching out to them. That's something that came to me very powerfully through the women's mentoring circles. I mean, the mentoring circles helped me and I hope to pass that on. So I suppose it's the idea of passing it on uh, to other women in the system as well. Yeah, I really love that sentiment. And I think our discussion today really shone a light on the transformational impact of policymaking, not only in empowering women and girls through the strategy and advice that you've just given, but also more broadly providing a potential career path for graduate law students with a variety of opportunities that offer both personal and professional development. So maybe a word to keep an eye out for any um, student placement programs running with the Northern Ireland civil service. I know there was one announced last June. So maybe around this time, people should keep an eye out for that. But again, thank you so much uh, for coming to talk to us today. And we'll be watching out for any progress in the strategy. And thank good you luck. very much indeed, Ruby. Thank you very much, Ruby. Thank you.